A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheist waren die Brüder in Amerika. Von Kaufen schaffen es es gibt Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide. Hudi Gabriel with Jewish History Soundbites, and this episode about Reb Meisha Rosen, the Nazar HaKadosh, is sponsored by Zelda Litwak Berger. And her husband, Saul, she's a granddaughter of Reb Meisha Rosen, and she is dedicating it in honor of her children, Deborah and Dr. Meir Abitan, and Benjamin and Blimi Berger, and her grandchildren, Dr. Baruch and Rabbi Usher, and Dr. Netanel and Judah Max, and Rezi Abitan, as well as Alexandra, Philip, and Joseph Berger, and their families, great-grandchildren, also in honor of the Litwak siblings, Grandchildren of Reb Meisha Rosen, Bernice London, Judith Garber, Aleha Shalom, Dorothy Klempner, Miriam Schiffman, and Rabbi Hillel David Litvak. So, uh, before we get to the very interesting story of um, Reb Meisha Rosen, the Nezer HaKadosh, so just uh, this week in the Mishpacha magazine, in honor of Hanukkah, there's something very, very special coming up. Um, not just another article, this is something completely unique, an entire new dimension of Mishpacha magazine. I um, hope you read the For the Record column every week um, at the Mishpacha magazine. But you definitely want to make sure to get the magazine this week. You want to get it in print to be able to sit on it a while. Um, there's The feature article is about um, much more than an article, like I said, is uh, about someone who many assume that you know about. It's arguably one of the more famous uh, Torah leaders, Torah builders of the 20th century, but you'll find out so much more about um, this individual and his world and history by reading this landmark article. Uh, Remarkably, though initially we were allotted our regular page space for the article, which would have provided enough reading material for only one night, a miracle took place, and we produced enough reading material to last for eight nights. So get your Mishpacha magazine and enjoy the surprise um, when you get it, when it comes out uh, later this week. So um, in the story of Reb Moshe Rosen, the Nezer HaKadosh, I want to first go out and thank um, Mrs. Zelda Berger for 
um, the information she provided, and I, and I was able to speak to her over the phone for several hours in, prepar- in preparing this episode. I used a wide range of source material, but none was more valuable and exciting than speaking with a granddaughter of Reb Meisha Rosen. Uh, she was very gracious with her time, shared memories, anecdotes, background, family details, a wealth of information, and much of that material is incorporated into this episode, so I want to thank her for her time and for sharing. Um, but there's quite a few articles scattered around about Ramesha Rosen and, and uh, found in several places, so was able to gather uh, quite a significant uh, uh, amount. Now, in the the my rare trips to the United States, so I generally organize tours, which I guide in the Mount Judah Cemetery in Queens, almost like the Haram Menuchas of America. Um, it's always great to greet uh, Jewish History Soundbites listeners in person. I was there this past summer. have no idea when the next time that I'll be there. Um, but one of the stories that I discussed and one of the graves that we visit on those tours is of Reb Meisha Rosen, known to posterity by the title of one of his more famous works. It's quite a few Svarim he wrote, the multi-volume uh, work that he wrote on Shaz, on Kudshim primarily, um, the Nazar HaKodesh, the Holy Crown, a very apt uh, description of him indeed. And with time of going to his, his caver and preparing material on him for those guided tours, I've come to explore his story further, and I believe that Ramesha Rosen's life story is a good prism into the wider context of Jewish life and the development of Orthodox Jewish life during the first half of the 20th century and that time of immigration from Eastern Europe to the United States and establishing himself in the United States and in the Brooklyn neighborhood of Brownsville. And I think it's a really, really um, good prism through his life story to really see a lot of what was going on that time. And I think it's a perfect topic for this podcast. And several weeks ago, I did a segment on the Agudas Rabbanim in America and its role or limited role or lack of a role in the development of American Jewish life. And at the end of that episode, I, I mentioned that the organization, you know, I've had a lot of qualifications um, about the accomplishments of the organization, but I did point out at the end of that episode that the individuals who made it up were quite fascinating and many of them quite accomplished as well. And therefore, I would rather delve into the lives of some of them. Um, And I invited the listeners of Jewish History Soundbites to further explore this with me together by profiling some of those specific individuals who were prominent in the Agudas Rabbanim. And the family of Reb Meisha Rosen was one of the ones who answered that invitation. And they were gracious enough to sponsor this episode to tell the story of their illustrious forebear, whose prominence on the Agudas Rabbanim, um, and even serving at its helm as its president for a period of time, um, is only one facet of his very interesting life story. Meshur Rosen was a prominent communal rabbi in Lithuania, first in the when it was still part of the Russian Empire, in Khvedyan, in the town of Khvedyan, western Lithuania, and um, in the surrounding area, the surrounding towns. And then in independent, when Chvedyan was part of independent Lithuania, for 30 years he was the rabbi there. And he was actually the one who discovered the Chazanish when he was a young man living in Chvedyan, where his wife was from. And he had a very interesting relationship with the Chazanish. 
during the Chazanish's formative years. He immigrates to the United States in 1928. He served as the first Rosh Hashiva of Torah Vedas. He served as a rabbi in Brownsville. He was a prolific author of the Nezer HaKadosh, the Rei Seifrim, and then later on, following his passing, his family put together his drushes, Oyel Maisha, and other Sfarim, and he's this well-respected and renowned Torah scholar, halachic paisik, rabbinical leader, until his passing in 1957. So he's through through the warriors, and then even the the post, the beginning, the early decade and, and plus of the post-war renaissance of, of, of orthodoxy in New York City. And outside of New York City, was the renaissance only came later. But um, so he, um, the influx of, of survivors after the war. So he, he lives through all that all those time periods, and he's prominent um, on the Agudas Rabbanim. He also supported other other Torah causes, individuals, um, Torah education. He was involved in the rescue efforts of the Vat Hatzala um, during the war. Um, he's a very, very interesting and quite unique uh, person that's worth delving into further. And of course, since it's coming out on Hanukkah, so I was trying to think, how can we somehow um, pretend uh, to, um, to, uh, to, to connect this, to make this a Hanukkah episode and, 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 um, and, and connect it to Hanukkah? So we don't have to pretend. There's a very good and strong connection to uh, Hanukkah with Ramesha Rosen's life. And that's how I'm going to start talking about him um, with this Hanukkah connection. So, because it's during the holiday. You know, we all we all have this experience during Hanukkah that we have to sit through some of these brutally boring Hanukkah parties and more often than not, it's some sort of family obligation that we need to attend. And we're, we're all in all sorts of uncomfortable social scenarios as a result with little conversation topics beyond the weather. So as a public service, I'd like to open with a story of Reb Moshe Rosen and a Hanukkah angle that's somewhat not well known. It's from his early years. And it can be a great conversation starter at any Hanukkah party. In addition, you'll also impress whoever you're schmoozing with with your knowledge and broadness of intellect. And of course, you shouldn't forget to tell them that you heard it on Jewish History Soundbites and encourage them to listen to the podcast as well if they don't do so already. So the story is as follows. Ramesha Rosen, um, he got married to Hinda Trivash, the daughter of Rabhil David Hakayan Trivash, who was the Rav in Vilki in, 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 uh, in Russia, um, and um, not far from Grudna, and he, I'm sorry, not far from Kovna, excuse me, in Lithuania today. And the name Trivash comes from the town of Troye, Troye in France, southeast of, of Paris, uh, the hometown of Rashi. And, and these people who were named Trivash were descendants of Rashi. And many, many descendants of Rashi had a variation of this town. Rashi wasn't a Kayan, but it's some, some, at some point it's a matrilineal descent, but they retained the Trivash name because of the prestige of being associated with Rashi. Um, so many, many descendants of Rashi had the variation of this town as their family name. Either way, Reb Hill David is the Rabbi Vilki, and he was quite a prominent individual in rabbinic circles of the Lithuanian Jewish life towards the end of the 19th century. One of his more famous projects was serving as the editor of the Hapiska Journal, which was an Orthodox periodical and published for nearly a decade between 1895 and about 1904. 
and it had the distinction of being one of the first Orthodox ones, which was actually published in the Russian Empire. Previous ones like Halavanin and others were published outside of Russia and distributed within uh, the Pale of Settlement. Uh, but they to get license, a license to publish within Russia was a bit complicated with the, Rush, the Tsarist era censors and all that. So they were primarily published in Vilna by the Ram family printing press, the famous uh, uh, widow and her children who, who printed the Shas and other books. So they also printed the Hapiska Journal. And the stated goal of the Hapiska Journal, this periodical, was to oppose... Um, the some of the more popular newspapers like Hamelitz and Hatzfira and similar newspapers which were considered modern and enlightened and progressive and the orthodox establishment which found itself on the defensive by the end of the century um, were looking for a media, um, um, media medium to express their message out uh, in, uh, in I don't know if actually opposition or as to have an alternative uh, voice uh, competing for the Jewish street at the turn of the century. One of the more quirky challenges to tradition swirling around intellectual circles at the time was uh, the story of the... Ver- was to, there was this movement to doubt the veracity of the miracle of the oil in the Hanukkah story lasting eight days. Um, so what had been and is axiomatic as part of the Hanukkah story is that the miracle of the oil lasting eight days during the uh, during the time of the victory of of, uh, of Hanukkah, and 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 there was this doubting the miracle. No, it's not what happened. It didn't let really last eight days. That was one of the um, one of the claims made at the time. Apparently, it's a dispute if the if the uh, oil miracle happened altogether and. Really, the entire celebration was limited to the military victory of the Hasmonean Revolt, and the eight days was related to Sukkot. Either way, there's a lot of material out there on the topic, and I am definitely not the one to know about it. It's a time period of history that I'm, I don't study, I don't research. And of course, we know, and definitely in our family, in our community, we celebrate the Hanukkah oil miracle victory of eight days and we believe in the miracle as it is written in Chazal. But apparently out there, there's a dispute about it, or at least there was at the end of the 19th century. Um, in any event, Ramesha Rosen was a young married student uh, living in his father-in-law's home in Vilki, and he was being supported by his father-in-law at the time of the Hapiska Journal's founding. And at the first, the very first edition of Hapiska, this young, unknown Ramesha Rosen contributes a lengthy and scholarly and very impressive article to this first edition. Um, and the article is entitled Arach Lener, and he proves beyond the shadow, any shadow of doubt, the truth of the oil miracle as the basis of the Hanukkah story, as the basis of the holiday of Hanukkah, that it really lasted eight days, and it's really true, and it really happened. And this article was an amazing accomplishment. See, and see, he drew on this incredibly wide variety of sources, and he showed his mastery of all of Talmudic literature and beyond, Midrashim and Rishonim and history, and a full clarity and methodical and built up his thesis, proving it point by point, disproving his opponent's points, and 
And, and it was on display for all to see. And it brought him international acclaim. He was completely unknown outside his hometown prior to this publication. And he became the Hanukkah miracle of his day. Rabbinic circles worldwide, as far as as far away as um, Reb Chizkiyah Medini, the Sdei Chemed, highly praised this article and this accomplishment of this young Torah scholar, uh, disproving those who doubted the Hanukkah miracle of the oil. And he contributed to the next two editions of the Hapiska Journal as as well. So this Hanukkah miracle was Reb Meisha Rosen's initial claim to fame. So... When was he born? So one of the articles I read says he was born in 1870. Another article I read says he was born in 1878. The latter claim I found quite amusing because about a page later, the same article claims that he received his rabbinical ordination from the great covenant rabbi, Rabbi Tzikalchan Inspector, when he was 20 years old. So that would make him receiving it in 1898. So receiving smicha from Ritzikul Khan Inspector two years after Ritzikul Khan passed away, passed away might be one of the strangest things I've heard of in a long time. So in reality, he did receive smicha from Ritzikul Khan. Um, and it might have even been before he was 20 years old. It might have been when he was 17 or 18 years old. But it's, it's irrelevant because he was definitely born earlier than 1878. Either he was born in 1870, like the other article said, or possibly a couple of years later, which is what his granddaughter posited when I spoke to her. Um, so he was born in sometime in the early 1870s. Related to his age is another thing I found um, in the uh, in the rather bizarre uh, memoir of Mordechai Elephant. Um, there, where he, where he, where he says that he knew him when he was in Beis Talmud by Reb Leib Malin, and he writes there that he knew him when Reb Moshe Rosen was in his nineties. So even if his earliest birth year is 1870, that means he was 87 when he passed away. So if Reb Elephant knew him a few years before he passed away when he was in his mid nineties, so that's another, you know, a couple of years off. Um, he would never was in his 90s, but that's okay. It's just a few years off. It's not a big deal. Nothing to get uh, too excited about. In any event, he grew up in Brinsk, um, and he studied locally. He also studied in, in nearby in Bielsk, and then in Ruzhani. The latter in, in Ruzhani was as a student of Mordechai Gimpel Yafe. And then, of course, like I said, he received smicha from Rabbi Tzikalchan Inspector, the Kovnerov, and also from Ramesha Danashevsky of Slabotka, at a relatively young age. He then marries, like I said, Hinda Trivash. And then he studied in, in the famed, famous uh, Kovna Kail for a period of time in preparation for the rabbinate. And he's appointed the rabbi of the Lithuanian town of Chvedyan, in western Lithuania, near the German border. He was the rabbi there for approximately 30 years until his immigration to the United States in the late 1920s. One of the few rabbis who stayed there through the German occupation during World War I and he did not flee east to the Russian interior, as did many other rabbinical leaders of his time. And as a result, he assumed rabbinical responsibilities for several surrounding towns as well, Ritava and other places, and he would make his rounds to these other towns and, and, and uh, take on that additional responsibility. He also had to deal with the German occupation authorities regarding arrests and food distribution, forced labor, and many other issues. He was very involved in assisting Jewish refugees during the war. The German military officials placed him in charge of bread distribution for the general populace, not just the Jewish community. He had 
kosher food allocation for the Jewish community and regular food for the general population. Uh, he had that responsibility. He was once summoned to the German uh, to a German military tribunal um, during World War One due to an informant having related that several Jews were engaged in smuggling merchandise illegally, and and it is with the tacit tacit excuse me, uh, approval and even possibly cooperation of Hermesha Rosen, which was, which was un- unfounded. Um, so he was arrested and taken to this tribunal. He testified before the tribunal. He spoke several languages. He spoke German, he spoke French, he spoke Russian. Um, of course, he spoke uh, uh, Hebrew and Yiddish. And later he spoke English as well. He knew quite a few languages. Um, but he refused, um, under this interrogation, he refused to disclose any names of other Jews, um, and he was ultimately cleared of any wrongdoing, and he was released. During this time, he also risked his life and safety on several occasions in order to rescue Jews who had been arrested by the occupational authorities. His primary, um, what he was known for from his youth, was his diligence, his asmada. As a child, he was nicknamed Maishala Masmid, and it was a trait which stuck with him for the rest of his life. Um, he he uh, all throughout all the years of his rabbinical leadership and responsibilities in Chavidyan and later on in the United States, his primary occupation every day was this hours and hours of intensive Torah study for pretty much most hours of the day. He corresponded with some of the great uh, Torah leaders of his day, Rabbi Yosef Rosen, the Ragachover, Rameir Simcha of Dvinsk, Dar Samech, Rabbi Chaim Gajinsky, and several others, Rav Cook, um, along with. That was his incredibly impressive literary output. He wrote the multi-volume Nezer HaKadosh, which became a classic on, on Kadshim. He wrote Divrei Seifram. He wrote on all areas of Halacha, um, as in, in Psak. It was, it was his Nezer HaKadosh was considered a foundational Sefer. He wrote on Tyrus. The Chazanish actually wanted to publish a commentary of Rabbi Meisha Rosen on Kalim in Tyrus at one point. His speeches were collected after his passing and published in Oihel Meisha. When he published the first volume of Nezer HaKadosh, he sold a volume to the Chafetz Chaim. And the Chafetz Chaim went to the other room to get a ruble to pay for it. And he muttered under his breath, the rabbis think that they accomplished everything in life with the publication of a Sefer. They don't realize that they must continue studying and growing in Tyra and never say, I'm finished. And Ramesha Rosen heard the Chavetz Chaim muttering these words under his breath, and possibly the Chavetz Chaim wanted him to hear that. And Ramesh Rosen resolved that he, for the rest of his life, his life's mission would be continue to study with a zeal, with a diligence, intensely continue publishing many more Sfarim. And that's what he do, and he continued to do till the end of his life. And he actually, the majority of his Nezer HaKadosh and his other Sfarim were from his years in the United States, which impressed people that he continued to publish all these Sfarim as a rabbi in the United States in his old age. Um, one volume was actually published in Vilna when Rabbi Meisher Rosen was already in Brooklyn. So it was under the supervision of the Chazanish. He published it for him and added comments as well. Um, the rest were published in America. Following World War I and the establishment of independent Lithuania, he helped organize the Agudas Rabbanim of Lithuania. Um, he served as one of its leaders. Uh, one of the most interesting uh, aspects of his life was his relationship with the Chazanish during the years in Chvedyan. Uh, Ramesha Rosen was actually the Chazanish's Masader Kedushin when the Chazanish married his wife Basha, who was from Chvedyan. Um, one of, uh, of Ramesha Rosen's oldest daughter, Leah, 
later on Leah Litvak. Um, she, when she was seven, eight years old, she would volunteer to help uh, the wife of the Chazanish on market day. She ran a, uh, um, a fabric uh, store, and the Chazanish would initially would come and help her on the market days when it was busy. Um, so, in order to allow the Chazanish to continue to study Torah, even on the market days, so this little girl, seven, eight years old, would go out to the market and help um, the Chazanish's wife roll the fabric. She would. She was so young and short. She had to stand on a box to uh, this uh, uh, Leah Rosen Litvak uh, to uh, to help the Chazanish's wife. So it's a, it's an interesting uh, family connection. Also, the the Ramesh Rosen and the Chazanish would study together. Um, essentially, Ramesh Rosen is the one who discovers him, and he's likely the one who informed Chaim Eizer Gajinsky about the this young man, this young unknown. Gem, uh, treasure in Chvedian, the Chazanish. Um, in in town, they, the two of them would organize shiurim together. Um, it's lo- possible that the Chazanish even was asked, invited by the uh, Ramesh Rosen to occasionally sit on the Bezdin in town. Um, one of the articles I read had an apocryphal story about a mikveh fixing in Chvedian that the Chazanish and Ramesha rose in together. It could be that the actual story is true. What I liked about the story is that the story referred to another rabbi in Chvedian, and the clearly they meant to say that this rabbi was modern or progressive. Um, he was like the antagonist of the story. But the way the article wrote it was that they wrote that this this other rabbi, this modern progressive rabbi, was a neologue rabbi. So here we have a fascinating scenario, which is not recorded anywhere else, is, is that you have a Hungarian neologue in, in the middle of Lithuania. So my assumption is, is that the one who wrote the article had no idea what neologue was, and did not know that it was exclusively in Hungary, and there's not a chance that there would anyone be anyone be associated with the Neolog movements in the middle of Lithuania. That would just be impossible. So they probably just meant to write a modernist rabbi, um, and uh, and they somehow the term Neolog uh, came out instead. In any event, another story between Ramesha Rosen and the Chazanish was his encouraging uh, Ramesha Rosen to visit one of the townspeople who were sick. And Ramesha Rosen asked him why the Chazanish thought it was so important to do so, and the Chazanish said that he noticed that the relationship between the husband and the wife has been problematic lately, so a visit from the town rabbi ostensibly to visit him as a sick person would help smooth things out between the husband and wife as well. So I found that interesting too. Now in their studying together, the Nezer HaKadosh would defer to the Chazanish and treat him as his teacher, even though he was the rabbi, the older one, but uh, he understood who, the greatness of the Chazanish, even already as a young man. The townspeople had no idea who this fellow was. The whole thing was pretty much kept under the wraps and a secret, but in summary, Ramesha Rosen was truly the first person to see the Chazanish uh, for who he was. They kept the relationship for the rest of their life. They corresponded when he was in America and the Chazanish was ready in Israel. They corresponded. His granddaughter told me they even spoke occasionally on the phone, on the telephone, Um so that was a very interesting relationship. The, the Rabbi Rosen supported the Chazanish in his later years, also financially. In 1928, Rabbi Rosen moved to um, the United States. He immigrated there. He had lots of family there. He had his family had moved there earlier. Even his even his parents, uh, most of his family 
was had had uh, abandoned uh, Jewish observance. Uh, Rabbi Shirozin um, maintained a good relationship with them, even though they had immigrated to the United States much earlier um, and already abandoned Jewish observance. But and and so Rabbi Shirozin and his family, his wife and children, were the only ones who were religious. But um, they were the ones who were able to bring him over, and. Um, it's unclear why he had to leave at that point. It seems that the you know, recovery from the war, from World War One, was difficult. Um, um, his house was burnt at one point, so he had to move. Um, he he um, in America he had several positions. Uh, he had his his position, uh, later position, his his later position. He was a rabbi for a short time in one shul. Then his main position was in the Amboy Street Shul. Anshe Radishkovitz, which was a very, very prominent, one of the largest schools in Brownsville. His granddaughter told me that now recently Brownsville is experiencing urban renewal and Chabad have just bought back this old building and are renewing it, which is a fascinating story. I, I, I wasn't aware how, how much Brownsville is renewing as a Jewish community now. Um, but, um, but then Brownsville was one of the main Jewish neighborhoods of New York City, and this Anshe Radishkovitz, they they were very prominent shuls. He was a rabbi there for several years, and he also um, was the first Rosh Hashiva of Tarvidas. He was invited by Shraga Feivel Mendelovich. And I used to think um, that Reb David Leibowitz was the first Rosh Hashiva. I think I even said so on one of the earliest Jewish history episodes, Jewish history soundbites episodes uh, about Tarvidas way back a few years ago. But subsequent research seems to indicate um, that, in fact, Ramesha Rosen was the first Rosh Hashiva of Tarvidas, and Rabbi Leibowitz was only afterwards. I even, uh, someone, a listener, actually sent me an audio of, of Rabbi Yisrael Belsky discussing the history of uh, the yeshiva, and he mentioned this as well, and, um, and it seems to be so. I'm not sure why, you know, why it matters, why it's so important. I remember when I did uh, a tour, uh, when I was in Massachusetts about many years ago, I did a tour of Lexington and Concord. I think it was called the Freedom Tour or the, something like that. And, and, and one of the main themes of the tour was the shot heard around the world. The first shot of the revolution, was it in Lexington or was it Concord? And it was like a, a big machlekes and, and uh, it's very, very important. So, you know, the same thing here as well. It's very important to know who the first Rosh Hashiva was and that distinction goes to Ramesha Rosen. But... That's, and that's the historical uh, record. So he was a Rashiva there for a couple of years, somewhere between one and three years. And um, so there's the Tarvidas Elementary School, there's the Tarvidas High School, and here he's being brought in to be the Rashiva of the whole operation. And then there's the Post High School, which was his main position. There was about, it seems, 11 Post High School students at this time, including Rav Pam, who was a, a Talmud of Ramesha Rosen. And and um, this was the initial post high school um, program, and um, he delivered the shiurim to the post high school boys. Now there weren't that many post high school boys at the time. Everyone went to 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 to, to work to college to you know this is, the, this is at the time. So after a couple of years, it kind of disbanded. It didn't work out. It was unsustainable. It didn't there was some exchange of students from New Haven. And, before, after, that's also um, that also took place. Uh, New Haven was a bit of a, a competition with the, the post high school program at Tarvidas at this time. 
But it, it, the idea is that it, it, it kind of like disbanded the post high school, the, the Masifta, the, the high school of Tarvidas flourished and continued. And then a couple of years later, the, the uh, post high school in Tarvidas continued again. And that's when Reb David Leibowitz went and assumed the position. So, so the, uh, the, um, the, uh, the, 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 didn't they, they that, that's why he left it disbanded there was nothing left for him to deliver the shiurim to because he was you know going for the higher level um not for the high school students for the higher level older students so he becomes the rabbi in brownsville amboy street shul anche radishkovitz um after he was there for quite some time for nearly 20 years until he uh, had to leave and he opened the shul in his home on 238 herzl street in brownsville he had problems with the shul because the shul was moving towards conservative. They're officially orthodox. They, they were not part of the conservative movement, at least at that point. But they they were moving towards, um, there was a modernist trends. Um, there was an issue about selling tickets for Yom Kippur services. They had the, the big chazan and Maisha Aisher, and later on, years later, was uh, Maisha Kasavitsky, all these famous chazanim. So they had to sell tickets, which was fundraisers for the shul. And and also the uh, and there was no Erev in in uh, in Brownsville. So Ramesha Rosen said, "You can't sell the tickets. People are going to carry the tickets to Shul on Yom Kippur." Well, they said, "Well, we have to sell the tickets, and people will carry. That's their problem. Um, the, you know, they, they need to show the ticket." So they had a dispute about that, and it really reflected a wider uh, dispute about the direction of where the Shul was going. And it was just at that time that he got sick, and he was unable to come to shul for a couple of months. He, he fell ill. He was bedridden. It was just around that time. The Agudas Rabbanim said no one should take the position because as soon as he recovers, he's taking it back. Um, the shul went ahead and advertised that the position is open, and someone took it. Um, so there's some bad blood there. Um, um, and Ramesha Rosen ultimately had to leave the shul as a result, and he opened this shul in his house in Herzl Street, which was where he was, a small little place. He had some of his wealthier supporters underwrite him, but they soon left Brownsville for the, for the wealthier, the middle-class neighborhoods of Crown Heights and, and, and other places in Brooklyn. Brownsville was considered a working-class, poorer neighborhood, um, but those people continued to support him even from far. And at the same time, he has this tiny little shul in Brownsville, he rises to national prominence in Orthodox circles in the United States, in the Agudas Rabbanim. He's invited by, by Yeshiva Srebeni Yitzhak Al-Khanan um, to succeed Rabbi Meisha Soloveitchik in 1940. Um, there was, a, it was a, 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 a dispute on the board if Rav Soloveitchik's son, Rav Meisha Soloveitchik's son, Rabbi, Rabbi, Rabbi J.B. Soloveitchik, Rabbi Yusuf Bar Soloveitchik, should be, succeed his father, or... Should they hire someone else? And they wanted to hire Meisher Rosen. Meisher Rosen turned it down. He he um, possible possible that he did deliver shiurim there for a short period of time temporarily. That's what it says in the YU Commentator magazine. My friend uh, Davi Safir showed me that source. But um, but he definitely turned down the position. Um, in 1948, he was invited to become. I'm not sure because Rav Herzog was the chief rabbi there, but he was invited by Rabbi Yudeleib Fishman Maimon to assume some sort of chief rabbi position um, in in Israel, in the new state of Israel. 
Rabbi Hudalei Fishman Maimon was close with his father-in-law, Rabbi Hil David Trivash, in uh, back in Europe. Back in Europe, he was like a Ben Bias by him. Um, Rabbi Moshe Rosen was a religious Zionist. He was associated with religious Zionism. So was his father-in-law, Rabbi Hil David Trivash. So the he had that um, that political stance, a supporter of Israel, and to buy trees in Petach Tikva. He encouraged his shul to plant orange trees there. Um, he would fundraise for for these causes as well. Um, he struggled financially for quite some time, and in his later years, he had a bit of money, and he supported the Chazanesh, he supported the Briskarav and others. Um, he was one of the heads of Ezra's Taira. He was one of the initiators of the Vat Hatzalah rescue efforts during the war. He encouraged the rabbis' march on Washington in 1943, but he was too elderly and sick to attend. And then he had his post-war involvement in Jewish education. His Locally in Brownsville, he had Chaim Berlin, which he was involved with, and then he also helped Rabbi Cutler found the Lakewood Yeshiva, and then especially an interesting story and a close relationship developed between him, Rabbi Shirozin, and Rabbi Malin, who had great respect for Rabbi Shirozin, and he helped him establish Beis HaTalmud, which was right nearby, right near Brownsville, in East New York. It's amazing how Rabbi Aaron Cutler, Rabbi Shirozin Feinstein, Rabbi Malin, Rabbi Henkin, and so many other leading rabbis saw him as the greatest Torah leader, Torah scholar, Talmud Chacham, in America at this time. They saw him as the the greatest, the biggest Talmud Chacham, the biggest Torah leader in the United States. Um, and Ramesh Rosen cared about the everyday Jew in Brownsville as well. When a Jewish worker would do some work in his home, he'd always overpay him. He would say, do me a favor and take another dollar. He would support many people financially in a discreet fashion, a very interesting um, individual. So this, um, uh, you know, those were some of his uh, accomplishments in, in the various capacities that he had in his years during the United States. Um, when he's in his um, 80s, uh, he, he was right, his wife had passed away. He he was still involved in the Gurus Rabbanim. He was in charge of the Kashras. He was in charge of all the Shechita in the tri-state area. He would oversee, he would inspect 10 Shlachtaises, 10 slaughterhouses on a regular basis. He and Rav Pinchas Taitz together, he had a relationship with Rabbi Liu Young, and met most of the leading rabbis in New York City and beyond at that time, would work with him. He was... Um, not you know didn't try to get overly politically involved in anything you know besides for his his uh, Zionism and his support for that um, but um, but so he but he started tried to remain uh, out of uh, po- politics he he had he had a telephone in his house which was quite rare um, at that time 1930s 40s 50s to make himself more accessible for people asking halachic questions um, and to make himself as as accessible as possible. Um, at his funeral, 1957, he passes away on the second day of Sukkot. He had one of the largest funerals in Brooklyn uh, history. The streets were closed off in Brownsville. 20,000 people attended. There was police uh, there directing the area as they closed off all the blocks. Um, he, Ramesha Feinstein said to delay the funeral till after Shabbos, to have full hespedim, despite it being chalamayed, um, Rabaran Cutler, Rav Meisha Feinstein, Rav Beisvalio Henkin, Rav Rom Kamenovich, Rav Pinchas Taitz, Rav Nissen Telushkin, all delivered his spadim at his funeral, and then at his Shleishim gathering, which was held at MTJ in on the Lower East Side. So Rav Meisha Feinstein, Rav Lazar Silver, Rav David Lifshitz, and family members all 
delivered a spadim. So it's quite amazing that someone who made such a significant contribution to American Orthodoxy, and his halacha, and his sfarim, and in the rabbinate, and in education, and he had this relationship with all the other Torah leaders of his day, and with people and individuals, and he's relatively unknown today. So I hope this episode did some justice in telling his story and sharing another slice of the history of the development of American Orthodoxy. So this was Yehudi Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at for questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, sponsorships, and lectures. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites at Podbean or your favorite podcast platform, and I hope you enjoyed.